The passage that we're going to look at together this evening includes chapter 24 that we've read already together, but it's also a few verses previously in chapter 23. So we're looking at the chunk of of scripture from uh, chapter 23, verse 20, through to the end of chapter 24. Let me get you up to speed as to where we are over the past or have been over the past number of weeks since we started back in Exodus. We took some time last year to look at the Ten Commandments to see what they have to teach us and then we we came back in uh, uh, since January and started looking at uh, what that means uh, a little bit after the Ten Commandments uh, explaining what, what they're about and how they are to be applied. So that's Exodus 20. Then the tail end of Exodus 20 right through to ch- end of chapter 3 is all about how the community are to interact with God and with each other. It's a very horizontal and and vertical teaching that's going on. Vertical, of course, in that the community's relationship with God, that is the first thing that is given. But then they're also taught that the horizontal relationship with each other, how the community interacts with each other, is good for them, but it also affects their vertical relationship with God as well if they are to be a community of his people. So tonight we're, we're finishing off what is all that bit about how the community should live. And then in chapter 24, we're going to start looking at what's to come and what God intends for his people. So we're looking at a promise and a commitment this evening. And verses 20 to 33 of Exodus 23 are all about the angel of God. And he says right at the start of that section that he is sending an angel ahead of you you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Here's God's promise. Right back in Genesis, God set a covenant in place. A covenant with Abraham that his descendants would number the stars in the sky And that God would claim these people as his own people. And this people group would claim God as their God. They would go into a land that God would set aside for them. And make it theirs. And we know that as the promised land. So that's what is being talked about here. We have to put Sinai. This whole Exodus 20 through to where we're at now. The whole Exodus out of Egypt coming to Mount Sinai, we we have to fully grasp it, otherwise we'll miss what's about to happen. Exodus is a huge moment in the history of the children of Israel. Remember where they'd been, hundreds of years in captivity with the Egyptians. The Egyptians with their whips cracking, getting these uh, Hebrews, as they called them, to, to build Egypt, to serve their Egyptian masters. So for the first time as a community that God had promised, they came together and they worshipped their God at Sinai. This was a unifying moment. This was an establishing moment. I have no doubt that the children of Israel, the people of God, were established long before this moment. But actually forming themselves as a functioning community happens at Sinai. They are given importance in their tribes. They're told to to consider their tribes again, to really live as the way God had intended for them. So for the first time, they are truly worshiping their God as he reveals himself to them. 
And at Sinai, God is confirming his covenant with the people. They've seen miraculous things. They've seen the ten plagues. They've come and crossed through the Sea of Reeds and saw the, the Egyptian army swallowed up. They saw God leading them, uh, seen God leading them and seen the wonderful things that he has done for them so that he can confirm his covenant with them. And they've also received, thirdly, their instruction as to how this community of God is to live. We've talked about that in the vertical and the horizontal relationship, but they are a new community. They're not to bring with them what they've learned in Egypt, things that they've picked up that through social interaction has subconsciously crept into how they live their lives, nor are they to look at the other nations, which, as we've already seen in other studies that we've looked at, they did. They started to look around and take a bit from here and a bit from there. But here at Sinai, God is, is forming them into a perfect community. Of course, when we throw in humankind into the mix, it doesn't always go as intended. So they are receiving instruction, and fourthly, they receive a promise of land. What God had always wanted for his people to be settled in a land that he would give them. This is Sinai. It is a big moment in the building of the children of Israel, the community of God. And, and how is God going to do this? Well, that, this is what he explains now in chapter 23. God's going to be with his people. He says, I am sending you an angel. This angel will do lots of things for you, and we'll come to look at that in a moment. But I am sending you an angel that's going to go ahead of you. Prepare the way. But in verse 21, God says this. He says, and we'll come to think about it in a moment, my name is in him. Now what does that mean? What, what can we understand by that? Well, here is this heavenly being, this eternal being coming. And God specifically says, my name is in him. Whenever you look at at the context of this and how the language of this is used in other uh, biblical passages, what it's saying is that God is in this angel. God is the one who is directing and guiding. God is the one who is leading. God is going to be the one who, in whatever way this angel is going to communicate with the people in terms of how they're led and guided. This is God coming to be with his people in angelic form to lead them to the place where he has for them. So this is a big thing. It means that God's people are not going to be left on their own as they set out on this mammoth journey to the land that God has promised. So what does the angel do? The angel does four things for God's people. He guards them, leads them, instructs them, and will punish them. So verse 22, the angel will guard them. Here were God's people going into lands that were going to have to be conquered. And God assures them that he's going to conquer them. But they still had to be people who were protected. Here they were in the wilds of, of well, what we know it as Palestine. But as they went into that great land, they had to be protected. And there was only one way they could be protected. And that was by God himself. 
and this angel that he would send. It was important that they knew that security of God. Secondly, the angel would lead them. They had to be guided along the way. They had no idea where they were going. And so this angel is sent to lead them in the way that God would have for them. Thirdly, they were a people who needed instruction. I think if we know anything about the history of the children of Israel, that's one thing they needed a lot. Instruction. There would be communication from this angel as to how they were to be and what they were to do. It would instruct them in whatever needed to be done for them. And finally, this angel would punish them. Verse 21, pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. So it's also an angel who knew how to handle these people. As they would fall away from God, this angel had the authority to punish, not forgive their sins because they had to come in true repentance and repent of the way that they had gone. So that's what the angel does for the children of Israel. But the children of Israel are also to do some things. They're to do three things whenever it comes to this angel. They're to trust him, listen to him, and follow his instruction. God is a wonderful way of leading his people. He tells them, tells them what someone's going to do for them. And then... He tells them exactly the same thing, only that it's their responsibility to now follow what he has said. The children of Israel recognize that this angel has God's stamp on him. God is in him. And so they are to trust him. They are to listen to him as he instructs so that it can be for their growth and their benefit as a community. And they're not just to listen, but to follow so that they can be a people who are truly after God and not like these other religions, these other false gods that other communities had at that time. So that's what the angel is to do and what the children of Israel are to do. And then it goes on to say, well, here's what the children of Israel will get out of it. Firstly, God will deliver them. God wants to make that very clear to his people that he will deliver them. He has the plan set in motion and he will deliver them to the place where he wants to bring them. And secondly, that he will bring them through the lands of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And if you look at a map uh, of uh, the Holy Land and Egypt at that time, you can see some of the maps have it scattered where these tribes and these people groups were. And it spreads right through uh, that whole eastern Mediterranean uh, coastline and inland uh, to the mountains uh, that are there today. God will bring them through these lands. And God will judge these people for not following him and will bring victory to his own people. You see, God is saying he will do it all. He will guide his people. He will expect something from them, but he will do it just as he promised because he is leading them to a land that he has promised. And all the people need to do is to be obedient to him. We think that's quite an easy thing, but as we recognize in our own lives and in the history account of the children of Israel, that's harder than it sounds. See, in verse 24, God tells them the key thing. 
he says, do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water and I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full life span. God knows the heart of man. He knows that mankind can get distracted. And so he makes it very clear from the beginning of this community that they are to be a one God only people. And that is they are to be obedient to the true and living God who has delivered them. And when they worship him and when they acknowledge him as their true God, he will bless them. They will know this blessing on their lives. God shows his care for his people. He said he will deliver them, but he will also ensure their security when they enter the land. Because he says that he will do this over a period of time. He says, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. He says, I will do it in such a way that the wild animals will not flourish and grow that the land when you take it will be yours and ready to feed you and will be ready to sustain you. God is saying, I will secure you, my people, when you enter the land that I have given you. And God will give them security by setting their borders. It will go from the Red Sea along the Mediterranean to the Arabian Desert and as far north as the river Euphrates. But it comes with conditions. They are to have no covenant, no deals, with any of the people groups along the way or their gods and no foreigner must dwell in their camp. God says, I will take you through this and as you pass by, other things may attract you, other things may look so glittering and nice, but there's two things. Do not accept or make promises or agreements or covenants with those you pass through or with their gods and do not allow them to dwell among you. So in this last wee section of chapter 23, as we're finishing off God's way for his people, what can we learn as we think about it for today? Well, in these instructions, the people are called to trust in God alone and not let any other God capture their hearts. And it's the same with us today. And if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that this is something that we've been looking at over the past eight months or so. Other gods that capture our hearts. I've come to see in myself that I need to hear this message time and time again about the danger of allowing other gods to capture my heart. Because once I allow a god into my heart, it pushes out the true and living God whose rightful place it is to be there. So again, I ask myself as I ask you, what are the gods that you are allowing in your life that's pushing out the true living God who is the one who provides your salvation through Jesus Christ? See, God knows our human nature and time and time again through his word, he reminds us that we need to be one God-only people. And that God is to be him. 
In response to the question, which is the greatest commandment, in Luke 10, verse 27, Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Christ affirms that we are to be one God-only people. There cannot be room to allow other things to capture our hearts. The people will suffer from this. The children of Israel will suffer from allowing other gods to capture their hearts. In our society today, society so easily gets into our lives and captures our hearts and sets up its own little gods, none of whom can save us or redeem us. So are we one God-only people? Can we, by his strength, maintain that relationship with him so that we will know the covenant promises that he has for us. The other thing that we can learn from this last bit in Exodus is who our guide is. For the children of Israel, the angel was going to lead them and guide them and do everything for them that they needed. And so as we look at it with New Testament eyes, we recognize that that position is now taken by Christ. Christ is our guide. He is the one who will guard us, lead us, and instruct us. And this is everyday engagement with him. He is the one who secures our hearts so that those little gods cannot creep in. So from this first section that we look at, can we be one God-only people, having the confidence in Christ to lead us through each day so that we can live truly for him. Let's move into chapter 24 uh, and the story that now happens for us. The last couple of chapters have been very much about the teaching that God had for his people. Now we're back into a narrative story of, of what happens and when. Verse 1, God tells Moses that he is to come to him and he's to bring Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And what are they to do? They're to be there in worship, but it's to be at a distance, and only Moses can approach the Lord. God wants to speak with Moses and give direction for the building of the tabernacle, and we're coming to that in the next couple of weeks. So that is the purpose of this summons to meet with God. So Moses goes down, and he tells the people all that God has said to him. And they resound in one voice that they will do what the Lord has said. So they listen. And Moses records it. And we believe he records it in this book called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant seems to be the record of this journey. And we believe it feeds into what we read today. This record of the journey of the people of Israel. So Moses gets up early the next morning in verse 4. And he sets up an altar for sacrifices. He sets up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. If you can remember back to Exodus chapter 20, and at the end of the Ten Commandments between verses 22 and 26, God tells Moses about altars. Uh, and what they're to be. And he says in verse 24, Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. 
Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. So here is Moses following through what God has taught about altars and their purpose. But not only does he set up the altar, but he sets up the 12 stones to remind them of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then the young men of Israel are dispatched, most likely the firstborn uh, in each family, to act as priests to carry out uh, these sacrifices that are needed. So Moses is prepared. But notice what Moses does in this act of worship. He takes the blood and he divides it in two. One part he pours over the altar and the other part he sprinkles on the people. This is an, it's a key moment in the history of the children of Israel. We've already said that Sinai has been their, their worship meeting with God and they've never experienced anything like it. And they've now gathered in this setting in chapter 24 for public worship. And it's almost as if it's a commissioning as they send Moses to meet with God again. And the blood that he's just spread over the altar and sprinkled on the people, it does two things. Firstly, it's Godward, towards God. So in the blood that he pours over the altar, it satisfies God's requirement for the forgiveness of sins. The people are to recognize that they are sinful people and their sin must be atoned for. And so that's what their sacrifices does. And this is a public display of the blood being poured down over the altar as a way of ensuring that God's requirements are satisfied in the forgiveness of sins. And then he takes the blood and he sprinkles the people. This is an important personal moment for each individual of the community. This is a reminder to them of the mercy of God. That yes, on the altar sins are forgiven as the blood is poured, but that they are now sanctified with the sprinkling of that blood. That when they do slip and fall into sin, they are still sanctified by the mercy of God. It is to make the people holy. And so the scene moves from this public worship to the men going up the hill. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And what begins is, an, is a process of imagery. They're about to leave Sinai. And as humans distance themselves from key moments, they forget and what's being built up in the next few verses is an image of that moment when they truly worshipped with God and recognized him as their true God. And here are the four images. One is the splendor of God. An image of, is given to those who meet with God. They see the feet of God and under his feet a pavement of sapphire. And these leaders ate and drank with God. Here they catch an image, even only the feet of God, they are enough to remind them of this moment as leaders of the children of Israel. They see the splendor of God. 
Moses is called up to receive tablets of stone. This is a visible record of what God expects from his community. So not only will their leaders be be communicating and telling the awesomeness of God and what they've experienced, they will physically be able to show what God requires of his community in the tablets of stone. And for the whole people who are down at the bottom of the mountain, they see this cloud and and they see this fire uh, at the top. The image of the presence of God, a moment unlike any other, so that the whole people can catch an image of God and they will pass it from one generation to the next. So the elders see the splendor of God. The tablets of stone are a a visible record of what God expects from his people. And the cloud, what an image. It's there so that everyone will know that God is in their midst. And what we'll come to see in chapter 25, a gift to the people, the tabernacle, a picture of God's dwelling place with his people. And if you come back on the 4th of March, we'll... And we'll look at what the tabernacle was like. So finishing off, we thought about Exodus 23, wrapping it up. Now let's wrap up Exodus 24. What can we learn and what can we take from it? Well, I think the image of the sprinkling of blood is something that we can take with us as an encouragement as we go into the week ahead. In New Testament times, as we live, Whenever we think of blood, we think of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that was poured for us. It is the mercy of God through Jesus Christ for us. So that Christians are finally, truly okay with God. It's a continual sanctification. Each day that spiritual knowledge that we are forgiven people. The children of Israel had that physical imagery of blood being sprinkled on them. But we have the image of Christ, the risen Christ, whose blood was shed for us so that we can know mercy and grace as we go into each day, looking to know our God more. And what about our view of God? We've been building all evening thinking about this view of God. Well, four things. We know God through his son. That is how we come to God in a relationship. So we get an image and a picture of God through his son. Our view of God is grown as we have his word as our guide. The one thing that will teach us and reveal to us who God is and what he requires of us, his people in this day and in this age. Thirdly, we show Christ in the world by our living. So We show Christ and share Christ so that others can catch that image of God just like us. And fourthly, our view of God is in the church. Not the building that is around us, but in the people of God as a community themselves. Our view of God is grown as we meet with each other and as we as a community proclaim and profess him in the world around us. See, whenever we get this view of God, we cannot sit back and brood and do nothing. What we have before us should be a motivator for us to live lives that overflow with love. Because the picture, the ultimate image of God, is that he is a God of love. Exodus 23 and 24. 
can teach us how we interact with God and how we see God. We may think that it's quite difficult and that as we go and live our normal lives, it's not something that we think about every day. But God says we need to because he has demonstrated to his people and therefore to us how and why we are to do it. We need to find our image of God to allow it to grow so that even if it's only the coattails, we can know the blessing of the relationship that we have with God. We can abuse the knowledge that God came to us, so therefore we can sit back and do nothing. That is not an option. We need to be proactive in seeking God, knowing him as he feeds into our lives in everything that we do. We need to do it individually, but we also need to do it as a community so that together we can grow and discover God as his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call us to be your people. Thank you that you assure us of our salvation in Jesus Christ. So help us as we work this out, as we look at how you worked with your people in Israel. So teach us how you work with us today Reveal yourself to us. We may not see clouds and fire, but Lord, you, you work in other ways. We see you in creation. We see you working in the lives of others. So open our eyes to the reality of who you are and continue to teach us and instruct us. And Father, as you walked and helped the children of Israel along the way, so we have the confidence that you will do the same for us. In Jesus' name.